0: Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. You can listen to all our episodes on Podbean, Spotify, Apple, and YouTube. Enjoy. Does the amount of labour we put into our work matter? We may often believe that the quantity of labour we put into a task may equal the value of that good we have produced. But is it that simple? Does spending more time... Writing an essay mean it should be valued more than someone who spent less time on it. For hundreds of years, many economists believe that the value of a good depended on the cost of producing it. Many subscribe to the labour theory of value, which argues that a goods value derived from the amount of work that went into making it. The theory has been unravelled and replaced in the last century by a different theory proposed by the Austrian School of Economics, subjective theory of value. But the labour theory of value is still an important topic of discussion as it was the basis of Marx's critique of capitalism and many detractors of capitalism today still use the labour theory of value to attack wealthy owners of the so-called means of production. I'm here with Head of Political Economy at the Institute of Economic Affairs, Dr. Christian Niemitz, to discuss the labor theory of value, why it was central to classical Marxism and what theory economists use today to understand value and labor. Okay so Christian what is the labor theory of value?
1: It's the idea that the value of a product is uh, determined by the amount of labour that is contained in it, the number, the number of labour hours. Uh, or more generally, you could say it's, it's the idea that uh, the value of, of something, of a, of a good, is uh, a property of the good itself rather than something that we see in it. Um, So it's almost like a physical property, like the weight or density, or um, you could say in the way that uh, food now comes with these mandatory calorie labels. You can objectively measure how many calories are contained in it. Uh, In the same way, uh, old school Marxists used to think of uh, labor hours being contained in goods and in that way that is what determines their value and that is how uh, you can mm. uh, how, how the value is something that comes as a fixed feature of the good rather than just being something that we see in it and mm. that that has nothing to do with the good it's as uh, such
0: um so st- sticking on that i mean the labor theory of value is integral to many tenets of classical marxist as marxist thought Um, such as exploitation um, as you've sort of alluded to could you go in a bit more detail on this you know what is Marx saying is what is his critique of capitalism why does the labor theory of value matter in
1: that yes um, firstly the the labor theory of value is nowadays uh, mostly associated with marxist economics with socialist economics Um, but it didn't originate there. Uh, Marx didn't invent it. It was a fairly conventional belief at the time. Um, The classical economists, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, also believed in it or a version of it. Um, The difference was that they didn't do much with it. They uh, didn't draw any strong conclusions from it. They just talked about value in a way that implied that they believed in a version of the labor theory of value. But it wasn't uh, foundational to, uh, to anything they, they said, or, or certainly not. They wouldn't say um, this is the labor theory of value. Therefore, this is how we should run an economy or therefore we should adopt this or that economic policy. Now, Marx went several steps further. He said that, um, okay, according to classical economics, um, the production process is a combination of labor and capital. Uh, so this podcast here consists of us talking, that's labor, uh, and we're using capital. This microphone here is capital. Uh, that computer, that's capital. The recording software, that's capital. Uh, and by combining that, you get the final output, which is the podcast. Uh, Without the capital, it would be just us talking and nobody would ever know. Uh, Now, Marx said, uh, "Okay, but what is capital? Capital is really just past labor. Uh, It's just a manifestation of labor that someone's done in the past. So this microphone, at some point, some laborer produced it. Uh, Some laborers produced that computer. So uh, rather than saying production is the combination of labor and capital or that labor and capital produce value uh, it would be more correct to say that current labor and past labor produce value so everything is ultimately derived from labor labor is the only factor of production that truly matters and that therefore all um all the 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 proceeds uh f- all the wealth in society If it is all created by labor, it should all go to labor. It should all go to the laborers, the working class. The capital owners uh, in that model don't contribute anything useful. They just sit there and collect the profits. They just own stuff. Otherwise, uh, they they don't do anything useful. So so, um, an unreconstructed Marxist would think of capitalists in the way that, say, we might think of um, aristocrats in in a feudal economy. They just own the land, and uh, the peasants are the ones who produce all the value, and uh, the aristocratic landowner just collects their share and does nothing.
0: Mm, mm, yeah, so they yeah, exploit exploits the work of others, taking what they believe is you know what they own because they put the labour in it. Absolutely. Um, but the labour theory of value has been discredited since. Um, Marx and, as you say, Adam Smith and other classical e- economists uh, wrote about it. I mean, one of the obvious points is that you know there are uh, things of value which don't necessarily correlate to labour going into it. For example, like natural, like land. For example, it doesn't have to be owned or worked on to have a value. Um, or art, for example, which is. Just... So what 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 is, what replaces this theory in economics? Where, how do we? How, how do we get our understanding of value
1: right uh, it was challenged labor theory of, of value and, and the marxist understanding was uh, challenged at the end of the 19th century by the by the emerging austrian school of economics uh, and they did this in a number of ways first they uh, replaced um labor theory of value or any idea of objective value by uh uh, the idea that value is purely subjective, it's its purely about how we value something. It's not a property of the good, it's something that happens in our minds when we see a good. And uh, we uh, may have completely different valuations of, of the same good. That's not a property of the good, that's just something that happens in our minds. So value is subjective and that's uh, independent of, uh, of how much labor goes into producing it. Um, And then they also introduced the concept of uh, of that that market prices are uh, determined by not the absolute value of something, but the marginal value. Uh, What that means is um, classical economists like Adam Smith, uh, Adam Smith was grappling with something that was later called the diamond water paradox, uh, which is uh, he pointed out that um, that. Diamonds are much more expensive than water even though uh, diamonds are actually useless Uh, and whereas without water you would literally die within three days. So clearly uh, water is much more valuable to us than diamonds and nonetheless diamonds are more expensive and, and uh, he didn't have a proper explanation for that. Uh, he said, well, it's it's probably because diamonds also have an exchange value. You can use them to uh, exchange them for other things. But that's not really the reason. Uh, I don't think anyone buys a diamond thinking ah, I might exchange this later. Um, but rather, uh, this is where the Austrian school uh, comes in, where they said, um, it is, of course, true that the absolute value of water is much greater than that of diamonds or, or pretty much anything. If you are lost in the desert and somebody offers you a cup of water, uh, you would pay any price at that moment mm. uh, because the first unit of water is is extremely valuable. However, uh, once you've quenched your thirst, um, you don't value an additional cup of water very highly anymore uh if you have an abundance of water yeah you might use it to water plants or something but that's not uh, that's not indispensable that's not something on which you would place a super high value and therefore if you have water sellers who want to sell a certain quantity um they can't tell whether uh, for you this uh, this unit is the first one whether you've just come out of the desert and you're extremely thirsty, or whether you're buying this to water your plants. So therefore, uh, they have to put the same price on all units and that would have to be the last unit, the marginal unit, the one where you're just about prepared to pay for it. Uh, And that's not going to be very high because most of the time we're not lost in the desert. Most of the time we have enough water. And whereas with, uh, with diamonds, um, maybe diamonds are not a good example for uh, for for illustrating this this concept of the, of the marginal value because with with diamonds it's also a bit about showing off and, and, and to signal value it's partly uh, the fact that it is mm. uh, scarce maybe that's that's part of the value but you could say something like uh, a fine a special vintage Bordeaux wine um, th- there is by definition of a, a fixed supply of it because it's uh, harvested some year in the past. And unless uh, time travel is invented, you can't make more of it. Yeah. Uh, so that means that uh, even though you you could conceivably get to a stage, if you could somehow replicate it, if you could somehow flood the market with this wine, if you could somehow um, recreate exact exactly that kind of flavor, you could in theory get to a stage where customers think, uh, no, I've had enough of this wine. Uh, it's nice, but that's uh, that's as far as it will go. And then that that would be the marginal unit, and then the price would be low. It's just that if you only have a hundred bottles or so of that in the world, you will never even get to that stage where you just think, "Okay, I've, I'm saturated now. I've, I've had enough of it." And therefore, that wine is is so valuable because mm-hmm. it never gets to the stage where the the additional bottle isn't worth much anymore. Uh, so that's what the Austrian school uh, brought in. Firstly, value is subjective, mm-hmm. and then value is determined, or, or um, market prices are um, an aggregation of the value we place on on stuff. Uh, and, um, and it's determined at the margin, the last unit that's bought and sold, rather than the absolute value. And, um, and that was their way of, of of thinking about value and how prices are formed. Mm. And they also challenged the Marxist idea that uh, that the capitalist is useless, uh, that uh, any profits, any returns on capital are exploitation. They uh, said that uh, no capitalists do fulfil a very valuable role uh, or various valuable roles in a market economy uh firstly the reward for capital are the rewards for risk taking mm. so if you have if you're uh, if you're on an, on a normal employment contract your salary is the same every month so you have that certainty if you're self-employed it can fluctuate like mad and you wouldn't do that unless uh you would also get a bit more on average let's say you imagine you could choose between two types of work contracts One where your pay is the same every month. Uh, And the second option would be you get the same on average if you average it over several years, but it could be different every month. You could get loads of money this month, but then nothing for half a year. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, if the average is the same, of course, you would go for the less risky option. You Mm -hmm. would only accept the riskier one. If there was some benefit, if on average at least you got more of it, so profits um, are a reward for for risk taking. People wouldn't do that otherwise. And secondly, they're a reward for patience. Um, I'm I'm guessing you you're probably putting some money into a pension fund. Uh, the company pension fund, you, you're not going to see any of that until you're 65 or so. Uh, so if you couldn't get a return on that, of course, you wouldn't do it. You would mm-hmm. just consume it now. So it's a return for the risk taking, the patience. And if uh, if it's a capitalist who is also directly involved, so not, not a pension fund, but somebody who runs a company, it's a reward for, for that entrepreneurship, for knowing. What uh, what the market might value, where there's a latent demand, how to organise a production process—those are valuable things, and therefore it's not exploitative if capitalists get a reward
0: for them. Hmm. Hmm. I want to um, focus in on, on the subjective uh, theory of value just a little bit more, mm-hmm. um, because it arguably turned Marxism on its head. You know, that rather than seeing the value of outputs being determined by the value of inputs like labour the subjective theory of value showed that it's the other way around. In fact, the value of inputs like labor are determined by the value of what they produce. And I just yes. wonder how then does Marxism critique capitalism if this key component of the, the theory is, is is not necessarily true?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, firstly, the uh, that um, critique, that, that value is, is really subjective, uh, not contained in a, in a good, that's clearly true I think one of the uh, examples of one of the Austrian school economists used was that uh, to, to imagine uh, you have produced a certain number of, of cigarettes and then everybody gives up smoking now what's the value of these cigarettes zero of course uh, mm. it, is, uh, it, it doesn't matter how much labor is contained in them yeah. and uh, and as it happens today I saw an example of that uh, namely I saw a tweet from a Marxist um, either a publishing house or a bookshop or something where they said uh, 50% off uh, modern Marxist classics. And I thought, mm-hmm. <laughs> how is that possible? Has the the amount of labor hours in those books suddenly retroactively <laughs> dropped uh. by half? Did the authors maybe remember? I actually, it didn't take me 10 months to, months to write this. Uh, it only took me five months. Okay. So uh, th- they are clearly not applying it themselves. Mm-hmm. The reason why this hasn't uh, the refutation of, of the labor theory of value didn't damage Marxism is that um, I think it's the vast majority of anti-capitalists not just of the Marxist variety but all anti-capitalists uh, just start from an emotional dislike of capitalism They start from uh, from feeling there's just something wrong about capitalism. I just don't like it, there's there's something that somehow goes against the grain. Uh, And then they look for ways to rationalize that, to come up with rational sounding arguments to justify that gut feeling and this is uh, th- this isn't uh, just my assertion this is if you ask any anti-capitalist how they developed their ideas they will usually say well i've always sort of felt that way and then i read this book or that book and that Put it into words, but that shows you they already had the conclusion. They were just looking for a clever way of putting it into words. Mm. Whereas with people on our side, it's usually uh, the opposite. They would usually say, "Well, I used to be a bit of a, a bit of a lefty, a bit of a socialist as a teenager, but then I read Friedman and Hayek, and first uh, first I hated it, but then I realized actually this, they they have a good point." So completely different uh, process. Uh, and what what always happens with anti-capitalist arguments uh, is that if you, if you start from your conclusion, capitalism is bad, and you just look for ways to rationalize that, if one of the reasons you come up with then falls down um, and implodes, that doesn't mean that you will re-evaluate capitalism, that you will suddenly start saying, uh, oh, maybe capitalism isn't so bad. No, you just look for a different reason to come to the same conclusion. And that's, uh, I think, what's what's going on here. There is a book on this uh, called um, the "Why We Bite the Invisible Hand: The Psychology of Anti-Capitalism," and the author uh, goes through some of Marx's writings, what he wrote over uh, over the years, and said um, that essentially the anti-capitalist conclusions are there right from the start, and Marx just came up with more and more elaborate ways of justifying that. So even uh, even the great man himself um, already did wh- what uh, I would say pretty much all anti-capitalists are doing today. So it is notable that Marxists nowadays, modern-day Marxists, Marxist economists or sociologists don't usually talk about the labor theory of value uh, anymore. So if you press them on it, they would probably try to justify it, but they wouldn't actively bring it up. There are a couple of Marxist commentators that are still fairly prominent today. There's, for example, there's, there's Grace Blakely, uh, used to be on TV all the time, uh, still is quite often. Uh, she's she's a Marxist purist, completely unreconstructed Marxist-Leninist. I've never heard her talk about labor theory of value. Mm. So even people like her, uh, in, if challenged, she probably would feel obliged to somehow defend it, but I don't think it's something she would, or people like her would bring up on their own. Mm.
0: Mm. Um, I think you mentioned this a little bit earlier on um, but price signals and uh, how vital they are uh, to make a subjective perception of value Uh, could you explain a little bit more about that Um, because the communication of prices is is, I mean people who do economics at university will know about the importance of this but it sometimes gets overlooked I mean sometimes people say well well, taxation is distorting the market and could you give an idea of why that, you know, this is important to understand if we're going to understand value as subjective?
1: Yes, uh, if um, consumer tastes change, so lots of people suddenly discover the joys of craft beers, uh, then more people will buy those. And uh, that means that in that industry, uh, salaries will also go up because they need to attract more people to work in those industries, and um, they might fall in in other breweries where they make more um, more conventional beers. And uh, this is how consumer tastes translate into uh, into market demand and. Uh, via price signals, you signal to producers, please make more of this, please make less of that. And they then pass on those signals in the form of um, their uh, behaviour when they buy input factors, um, whether that's uh, materials, uh, or in this case, hops, moulds, and barley, or the labour uh, that, that they buy. And um, so it's, it's actually the other way round, it's not uh, from the labor theory of, of value, it's not that there is a certain value somehow contained in in the beer, and uh, then it goes on the market, but uh, by, through market interactions between consumers and, and producers, uh, consumers signal what they like, and uh, that goes into the formation of prices. And that then translates into uh, in, into wages. Uh, that is how. Um, that is the reason why some wages in some sectors of the economy go up, and why they go down in in others. And um, so, it is the subjective valuation of consumers that ultimately determine um, the, the remuner- remuneration of uh, of labour. And if those signals are distorted then you have a problem then you get a distorted economy that's uh, most obviously true in uh, in planned economies where you don't have market prices at all but even in market economies if the if the government interferes with prices uh, through through taxes uh, that, that distort prices or, or tariffs or other measures then um, it's not going to be as bad as in a planned economy you still have some signal there but it's you get a distorted signal
0: and, and talking as just a very not an economist, but someone who did it at university, that would be an inefficient allocation of resources. That would is that the crux of the
1: yes, yeah. Um, you get some uh, overproduction of some things and underproduction of others.
0: Mm. And I just want to stick on this because I think listeners like myself who are not economists would like to, to having discussed the labor theory of value. You know, how do we t- determine the value of our labor today? Then. Um, is it to do with productivity or the added value that a worker gives to the person, to the company or their employer? Um, is, is that how we d- determine pay? And, and, and interestingly, how does the minimum wage fit in on this?
1: Yes, uh, broadly speaking, that's uh, the way it works. It would be uh, the wage should roughly correspond to uh, the value that you contribute to the company. But again, at, at the margin. Uh, so, uh, if you had, um, if uh, anti-capitalists often say, well, if if uh, if nobody worked for you, then you couldn't produce anything. So clearly, uh, um, it's. It cannot just be a wage rate of, of 10 pounds or, or, or 12 pounds. It has to be far more than that. Well, it depends. Uh, it is again the marginal value that, that counts. Uh, if you already have, let's say, 10 people um, and uh, you, uh, 10 employees and your production process is relatively smoothly, but you could do even better by adding an 11th person, uh, then. Uh, the the amount of money that you think that 11th person is going to add, uh, if that's the, the marginal worker, that's going to determine the wage rate, uh, not just for person number 11, but also for the other 10. Um, and that is why uh, if, if some sectors are oversubscribed, if you have lots of people who want to work in them, then wages are going to be low. Um, and that is not, uh, that doesn't mean that the work isn't valuable. It's just it's 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 value at the margin isn't super high, mm. and that's what uh, what determines wage rates. So if the the marginal worker contributes um, ten pounds per hour to your company, uh, then that is the maximum that you're prepared to pay. Uh, if um, if they are prepared to work for, say, £9, uh, then you still make a, a profit of £1 per hour, then you're going to do it. And uh, if, if they say, no, I want at least 11 but they're only contributing £10 at the margin, then you're not going to do it. Um, and broadly speaking, wages should should uh, correspond to that, and it's not going to be Perfectly correlated, but uh, over, over time that there, there will be a strong correlation. Um, I know that some anti-capitalists claim that uh, wages have been decoupled from productivity; that uh, that this is uh, this is no longer true. Um, but w- the problem here is what what they usually do is they bring up U.S. figures. Uh, There, it really looks that way at first sight, that uh, over the past couple of decades, median wages haven't improved very much, Uh, productivity has improved quite a lot. Uh, But there's a simple explanation for for that, uh, which uh, I think explains, should explain most of it. And that's simply that in the US case, uh, healthcare costs have exploded since the 80s. And from an employer's perspective, that is part of the wage package because they buy health insurance for their uh, employees in that system. So um, if health insurance premiums go up, then from the employer's perspective, that means the cost of employing someone has gone up. It's as if it may not feel like a wage rise to you because uh, you're, Uh, Your health insurance maybe hasn't got much better, Mm -hmm. Uh, it's not that it covers more things, but it is more expensive. And um, if uh, the employer pays another $1,000 per year on your health insurance, and from their perspective that is as if they had given you a pay rise of $1,000 already, and it may not feel that way to you because you never see those uh, Mm $1,000, and um, that might explain quite a lot of miscommunication that uh, for people uh, in a wage negotiation, uh, it may feel unfair. They, they think, well, uh, I'm not getting much of a, of a pay rise or haven't didn't get any pay rise for years. Uh, how, how is that fair? But the employer thinks, well, but I'm paying far more for your health insurance than, than I used to. So it's just that uh, employers and employees in that system see different prices different mm. numbers when they talk about remuneration the employer f- pays far more than what reaches the employee mm. Mm. so mm. It's, it's not that wages have become decoupled from productivity it's more that uh, the inc- the increase in health insurance costs swallows a lot of the uh, the increased um, yeah gross pay
0: um, does the labor theory of value still persist today in social social attitudes and, and political attitudes
1: I think it does uh, in a more indirect way. If you asked uh, some, uh, including uh, self-described socialists uh, explicitly, do you believe in the labor theory of value? I think most of them would say, would either say no, or would, say, would try to find some roundabout way of um, having it both ways. Um, but they wouldn't actively say, yes, the labor theory of value as the best thing ever. So uh, if you ask them explicitly, hardly anyone would would subscribe to it. But I think uh, it's... uh, We often uh, talk about economic processes as if we believed in the labor theory of value. Uh, What I mean by that is you often get these uh, arguments about uh, CEO pay, for example. Um, That's that someone would say, isn't it unfair that the CEO um, of, of this company or that company earns a uh, hundred times more than their cleaner. They're not working a hundred times uh, as much, and that is the labor theory of value, if you call it that or not. Uh, so implicitly, intuitively, uh, I think a, a lot of people do imagine. The economy in in that way that uh, you do think the amount uh, of of work that you put into something that determines the value and since the the CEO clearly doesn't uh, have uh, working hours that are hundred times as long as those of the cleaner it just feels unfair. But of course, if if you uh, if, if you approach this from the, the Austrian school of economics perspective uh, uh, and or other uh, schools that emphasize marginal value, you would say, well, there's, there's a perfectly good reason here. Uh, and, and that's simply that if a company, if a CEO resigns or if a, a company uh, hires a new CEO, that can make a big difference uh, to the, the balance sheet of the economy. Whereas uh, with the cleaner, well, the absolute value of cleaning is, of course, very high uh, because you wouldn't be able to work in a in a filthy office, but if you if if uh, a company is already reasonably clean, and they they're thinking about hiring one extra cleaner or mm. um, having one extra day of cleaning, that's not going to make a huge difference. And that's that's what determines again the pay. Uh, if you only had a hundred cleaners in the entire country, they would be millionaires. Mm. They they would be uh, able to to charge uh, super high wages. Mm. Um, but it's just that pay is determined at the margin, and there are far more than 100 people who can work as cleaners.
0: Yeah, and on the flip side, there's only a handful of CEOs who can do the certain job in the same exactly. industry.
1: Exactly. Yes. Yeah. If you could somehow clone CEOs, uh, then uh, in such a way that uh, the market is eventually saturated and uh, companies would think, ah, well, we wouldn't mind another CEO, but it's not really that important to us, then CEO pay would, of course, fall. <laughs>
0: Um, brilliant, well thank you very much Christian. That's Christian Niemitz, Head of Political Economy at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the IEA podcast on Podbean, Spotify or Apple. We also upload our podcast on our YouTube channel, IEA London. If you want to help contribute to the IEA's digital output, Please support us on Patreon, where you can benefit from exclusive membership perks whilst helping us continue to produce stimulating educational output. To become an online patron, click the link in the show notes.